This episode of The Significant Others was recorded across multiple lands. We recognise and acknowledge that all of Australia is Aboriginal land and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This week's episode has been sponsored by Cryo Village. At the gateway to the Geelong, Ballerine and Surf Coast region, Cryo Village is the one destination for all your shopping needs to dine, connect and care for your wellbeing. This week, you can win the ultimate grand final day at home with Cryo Village. Simply follow them on Instagram at Cryo Village and follow the links to sign up to their mailing list for your chance to win an epic grand final day prize pack valued at over $300. With a wide range of retailers and services under one roof, Cryo Village is the place to shop. Follow them on Instagram at Cryo Village and find them at cryovillage.com.au. Grand final day competition terms and conditions apply. Often as women, I think we're seen as selfish if we're not putting our partner forward or our child first. But the way I look at it is that I'm a better mother and a better wife if I'm happy in myself. Our special guest this week on The Significant Others is Sarah Scott. Sarah is a language lover, a student of many disciplines, an ex-nurse, a hobby marriage celebrant, and now the co-owner of Geelong-based eco-beauty and natural product business, Natural Supply Co. Sarah is a natural-born socialiser and connector and a mother to a beautiful daughter, Layla, who she shares with her husband and coach at Geelong, Chris. This episode also has a content warning. Today we'll be discussing pregnancy as well as pregnancy loss. So we understand for anyone who would like to switch off now. So we usually start way back early days for Sarah growing up and you actually have a really interesting story to tell us there. Tell us the long story about Sarah. (laughs) So what happened was uh, when I was five, my dad got an opportunity um, with his work to move to Japan. So my dad was actually a priest. He's retired now, but that was what took him over there. And he was working at the English language church in Tokyo. And so you know, he and mum went over with two kids. My brother was three and, uh, sorry, two and I was five. And they went to this country where they knew no one, didn't speak the language. Like I look back now and especially, you know, with young kids, you think that is such a bold move. We were there for six years. So it was great. Like it was such a fun place to grow up. And I probably didn't appreciate the, the opportunity that it was. It wasn't until I reflected on it that I realised how much it has shaped me and my outlook on things, you know, global outlook, just going to an international school with so many different cultures. You know, you'd be in a a class and there'd be someone from Peru and someone from Ethiopia and, you know, there was so much diversity there. Uh, And then when I came back to Adelaide, I sort of came back to this very white Anglo classroom and it, yeah, it was was a bit of a shock actually. Do you remember experiencing? any culture shock? Yes, definitely. Because uh, the, the international school that I went to was run by American nuns. And so most people there were US or maybe had like a Japanese dad and a, a US mum, something like that. But yeah, I think there was, I felt like I came back to Adelaide and, you know, Adelaide in the late 80s, it was a pretty slow country town. And I was used to living in a city with 10 million people. So the pace of life was very different. Yeah, maybe just the the kids around me in terms of their world experience was very different. You said how that has then shaped you going forward as an adult. Can you talk a little bit about that, I suppose, appreciation of multiculturalism? You know, because you were so young living overseas that you were able to adapt 
to new environments as you went through life? Definitely. I think that has really been a a strong part of who I am today because you know, we, we travelled a lot while we were there. We were always meeting new people with really interesting stories and jobs. You know, even looking back now, I think about the the kids that I was friends with. And you, you did have to learn to make friends um, really easily because you would make friends with someone and then, you know, their parents would be moved after two years and that that tended to be the expat life that every three years people would get moved on. So it did teach you to learn to make friends really quickly and and I think just to cross a lot of cultural bridges you know I do I do feel like Australia has got a bit of work to do in how we welcome refugees how we treat people who come here and just want a better life for their families but also you know what it's like to go to a new country and not speak the language it's really tough yeah that's definitely been ingrained into my psyche for sure where would you say home is for you then oh it's funny marty it's geelong i think because geelong we've been here for just over 10 years and that is the longest that i've ever lived anywhere in my life so i think i do feel like i've put down roots here you know i've I've had my daughter here. So that really helps cement your place in the world. I think when you have kids and, you know, they start going to school and they make their friends and you have a mother's group. So yeah, it's Geelong. Should we roll straight into family life then and having children and setting up that base for yourself, your family? Because we haven't really even mentioned Chris yet. Do we need to know how you met him maybe? So Chris and I met in Brisbane. I had moved back. I'd been living overseas in London for a couple of years I had, you know, the sort of same old story that I'd just broken up with the boyfriend I'd been living overseas with and I didn't want to go back to Adelaide because that was just, you know, a sort of small hometown and my brother was living in Brisbane at the time and he had a, a spare room in his share house so he said, oh, well, why don't you come to Brisbane? And my brother is good friends with Chris um, and still is. I think, you know, we'd met at a couple of things and then Chris started coming around to the house and I was like, oh, I wasn't really wasn't interested in meeting anyone. I thought, well, he's actually a really nice guy and I was very anti-footballers as well. Um, but I was like, oh, he seems different and, you know, was just happy to sort of sit there and chat about whatever it was. Yeah, my brother was a bit funny about it because I think he was worried that if things went badly, he would lose a friend and he'd have to be on my side. <laughs> but it's really nice now because it means that when we have family events, you know, my brother and Chris are still really close and they can go off and, you know, play golf together and, and have that really nice relationship. So, yeah, it's good. Layla is like a teenager in a seven-year-old body. She has so much confidence and, like, do I say swagger? Yeah, it's definitely a sass, swagger, yeah. It's something yeah. It's something along those lines. She has so much character and personality. I adore her. <laughs> can you tell us about how she came along and when she came into the family? We always knew that we wanted to have kids and I think when Chris was playing, he was really strong on not wanting to have children when he was playing. So we had met just at the end of his career and I think looking back now, he may may change that opinion. He didn't know he was going to go into coaching and have even less fun than um, than players. And that was fine with me. I was very happy to sort of be together and get married and it's a very traditional chronology. When we moved to Geelong, I felt like it was a really good place to have a family. My mum's in Adelaide, so it wasn't too far away and I had support from Melbourne. We had a miscarriage before I fell pregnant with Layla. So that was, you know, that was pretty hard to, to get through 
through, especially because you have no idea what's going on first time round. But then, you know, you sort of, you think, okay, well, this is, you, I think you realise how much you want it when it's something that's taken away probably. Mm-hmm. So then second time round was a charm. And I remember just that feeling of, you know, being at the scan and there was a heartbeat and, you know, you're like, okay, this is, this is really good. And then we actually, we found out that Layla was a girl. We didn't tell anyone. Chris really wanted to know. He was actually really keen to have a girl. So a lot of people find that strange. They think that footballers always want boys, but he, I think he was very keen not to have a boy. I don't know if it's because he knew what he was like as a child. Or, um, <laughs> it's been really nice um, seeing him with a daughter because he can nurture a different side of himself that is probably not one that he would bring out at the football club. He can be silly and, you know, he can dress up and let Layla put makeup on him and, you know, just be like bring out that feminine side to him that not a lot of people see. So that's been really nice. I have a really special bond. Yeah, and then we we had sort of planned to have more children and I had quite a few miscarriages all in a row and I think I just got to a point where I thought, I don't know if I can put myself through this again mentally And Chris was really supportive. He said, you just, whatever you want to do, I will support. If you want to keep trying, we'll do that. If you say no, then, you know, like we're so lucky we have one daughter, she's healthy and yep, she has enough personality for at least three (laughs) children. So, And then when I actually let myself think about what I really wanted and not what society was sort of, you know, what I felt was dictating to me about, oh, you know, you don't want to have an only child because they won't have a sibling and they won't be social and that sort of thing and actually let myself sit with it for a while. Then I felt like I had this huge weight lifted off my shoulders when I made that decision that, all right, this is our family. This is, you know, three of us, one child. We're really happy and, you know, like this is this is us. And it just made such a difference to me mentally to to have that. And it did, it took a while, you know, like that's over a couple of years or maybe two or three years that it, it took to sort of get to that point. And now I look and, you know, and, uh, yeah, I can't imagine it any other way where we have a lot of fun and, you know, there are advantages to having one child. And, you know, I, I think she doesn't, she always says that she doesn't want any brothers or sisters because she doesn't want to fight with anyone. <laughs> But I've always made sure that we have given her lots of play dates with cousins, with friends, you know, that, that she is social. You know, I think people do get caught up and, you know, it's ingrained in us from from very early days that this nuclear family of mum, dad and two kids. And mm-hmm. even to the point where at school Layla was given a family tree to fill in and it didn't account for step-parents or step-grandparents or, you know, even different genders. Like it was very mm. traditional. And I said something to the teacher about it because, you know, she's got no siblings. My parents are divorced. So it's, everyone's got such different family makeup. About miscarriages and, and that, how can we, I guess, open up that conversation a little bit more gently so that people do feel less alone and in a gentle, obviously in a safe, gentle way because it's absolutely something that more people experience than we could imagine? I think, you know, women are tending to talk about it a little bit more. I would like to see more men talk about that they've been through a miscarriage Mm -hmm. because I think that tends to get forgotten about. And, you know, as women, it's really physical for us. But, you know, men have 
have this emotional loss too and they have to deal with that in a different way. So I think that's one thing is, you know, if if dads were talking about it with their friends or, you know, they because actually Chris let his family know that was his thing, that he would tell them what had happened, which, you know, was good for me because I just, I didn't want to talk about it the whole time and was sort of like, well, it's his family and he needs to tell them because that's part of you know, part of the grief process as well. I think that's such a beautiful insight in a way by preventing or stopping men from having these conversations where I suppose putting more of that responsibility, that difficult responsibility on women, but we're also preventing men from being able to claim that story as their own too and as parents who've gone through loss and are allowed to feel those emotions. Yeah, that's right. And we sort of dealt with it in our own way. So one of the things, and it became a bit of a a ritual because because there was a few to you know to grieve and so I went and got like a really nice bottle of French champagne Chris went and got some oysters and we just like sat on our backyard on the grass and sort of had a picnic and made a bit of a not a toast but I guess it was a toast to to the loss and that really helped me because it was like, all right, we're marking this, we're acknowledging it, we're not trying to sweep it under the rug, you know, we're just letting ourselves feel the sadness but going, do you know what, like we're okay because we're a team and we'll we'll get through this and it, it really did help like this sort of physical marking of what had happened. Does it make you feel like a really strong team knowing you've gone through all that together? Yeah, definitely, Hester. I think that's part of, you know, how you grow as a couple is that it's not all the all the fun times. You know, Chris is not one for many words, but he shows me, you know, how he's feeling. He gives very good hugs and that's exactly what I needed at the time. Um, because sometimes, you know, there are no words. You just you just need that physical contact and reminder that there's someone else there that's, you know, holding you up almost literally. Yeah, I, I really do think it it did make us stronger. You are listening to the Significant Others podcast. Should we jump back to how you got into nursing and the various careers that you've experienced so far? They're probably as diverse as all the cities you've lived in. Yeah, almost. It's just sort of been whatever opportunity has come up depending on where I am. So I started, you know, out of school, I really didn't know what I wanted to be. I was a good student at school and I liked most subjects. So I sort of wasn't really steered in any particular direction. And I think you know, it probably was a bit traditional in the sense that I finished in the early 90s and there was a little bit of that jobs for women uh, teaching and nursing. It probably wasn't overt, but like maybe a little bit came from, you know, family and, you know, what I had seen. Like I've got um, nurses in my family on my dad's side. So I really, I had enjoyed science and biology. So I thought, oh yeah, that sounds good. And I wanted, I knew I wanted to help people and, um, you know, sort of be in like a people person job. So that sounded like a plan. And I went to uni in Adelaide. So I'd came back from Japan in high school. Yeah, I think I probably deep down always knew that I wasn't going to be nursing for 20 years, but it was really good. Like I look back now and it was such a good opportunity for me because it meant that I could go overseas to London and find work easily. So from that perspective, nursing is great to travel with. And I think I was really worried that I would be pigeonholed as a nurse. And it wasn't until... I started working in, uh, got out of nursing and went into different areas that I realised that 
there are actually a lot of transferable skills. So if you can deal with people who are basically at their worst when they're sick, you will have no problems dealing with you know, 99% of society. So that was a really good lesson. So I, I really don't regret doing that at uni. And I made some really good friends there because I lived on campus in Wyala, which is a regional city in South Australia. So I loved it from that point of view. And then I worked in cosmetic surgery in London. So I saw some really interesting people come through the surgeon's door. It was so interesting and it, it really opened my eyes. So I was 24, 25 and it really was this whole new world. Yeah, so it sort of moved on from there that I came back to Australia. So as I said, had moved to Brisbane and actually went back to uni to study linguistics and international relations because I was really interested in sort of global politics and language acquisition. But again, I think I didn't really have a particular career in mind. I just thought it sounded really interesting. And so I was working part-time as a dermatology nurse. Then I got really into the holistic medicine and I ended up working for a beautiful German doctor called Michael Artman, who is up in the Gold Coast hinterland. He's a homeopathic doctor, but also a GP. And he got me really interested in environmental medicine and wellness from a total body perspective. I think that's sort of what's led me. Uh, I went down that path a bit more and was keen to look into that a bit. So when we moved to Perth, when Chris got the job coaching at the Dockers as an assistant coach, I started studying acupuncture. So there is a bit of a theme here of me (laughs) starting a lot of things and being interested in lots of different things, but I'm a Pisces, so I feel like I do jump around a lot, but I I love change. It's not that I get bored. I just, I like to try new things. And you've been a marriage celebrant too. Yes. Now, Hester, you a marriage celebrant as well. I am. And a Pisces, so we have a lot in common. Oh, there you go. You understand. (laughs) Yeah, the marriage celebrant thing came about because I was actually at a pub with some friends who were getting married and, you know, we'd had a few drinks, as is always the case. And they had said to me they didn't want to be married. They weren't religious, so they didn't want to be married by a priest and they wanted to have a friend do it. And so they asked me because they felt because my dad was a priest, I was the most qualified out of everything <laughs> to do it. So I said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll do the course. I was pregnant with Layla and I remember thinking, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Like, you know, newborns just sleep all the time, so I'll be able to do the study. And as you know, Hester, it's not difficult, but there is a fair bit involved. Mm. So I had sort of six months of with a newborn trying to get this course finished before my friend's wedding. And then it's been nice. Like I, I, it's really an on the side type of thing. So I just do, you know, friends or friends of friends. And it's been really nice to do some family weddings and the girl from my mother's group. Yeah, it's a bit of fun. I love how you talk about trying new things different types of study, moving around in jobs. I feel like we don't really talk about that a lot and there can be a bit of stigma on trying new things and moving around, but it's actually really normal and really healthy, isn't it? Would you say that trying all those things has helped you really nail down something you love? Yeah, absolutely. I probably wouldn't have come you know, to where I am now without doing all of that. And I think I saw a lot of older women who had been in the job for a long time and were really jaded and, you know, that's part of the institution of, 
of working in a hospital that it, it does that to you. And I, I think I just always thought I never wanted to be like that. I didn't want to not care. One of the things my mum has always said to me is, and it's she loves Jane Austen, so it's a pride and prejudice quote, but it's take every opportunity. And I think it's something that I've kind of kept in the back of my mind all of these years that if someone has said, oh, would you like to work in this role, I've just said yes, because you never know what you learn out of it or who you'll meet or, you know, the networks that you make. And you're right, there is a little bit of a stigma of, you know, if you if you come to a job interview with this CV that has you jumping around, but then, you know, maybe, maybe some roles that's good for. There's probably, you know, there is a case for staying in one job, but it, that, that's probably not the case in in the millennium like it's mm. you know it's not our parents of 40 years in the one job is it and particularly as women when you're on mat leave and then different jobs are not available to you and then you're coming back two to three days a week which is really hard to find a job that suits you the hours that work with children so I think a lot of women are kind of forced into this, either starting their own businesses and then, you know, you realise that it does give you a lot of flexibility and it's probably the hardest that you'll ever work, you know, when, when you are running your own business. Is that what prompted you to start Mini Bar Co, which was your own online beauty business? Yeah, it was something that I had been talking about with a girlfriend. We were living in Perth at that time and then Chris got the job in Geelong. So it was, we were planning to start it in Perth, but... I moved over to Geelong and I was really keen to, I just wasn't sure what I was going to do in Geelong. And I thought, no, this is, you know, this is what I'll put my mind to. It it didn't work out because for family reasons, Mel had to leave the business. So I took it over. And then through that, someone had suggested that I meet with Celeste because she was doing digital marketing content. And they they sort of said, oh, you know, she might be able to help you um, with Minibar Co with the business. So we had organised to catch up for a coffee date and we just hit it off. Like, you know, when you know with those people that just get you and, you know, we had similar ideas about, I guess, values and life and just she was really easy to talk to and she you know, she understood exactly where I was coming from with the business. So then when she and her friend Kath had started Natural Supply Co, they asked me to come on board a year afterwards. And it just, it seemed like a really seamless fit that, you know, I'd been in that kind of beauty online space and they were moving into more of the organic wellness side of beauty and skincare, which was really of interest to me. What's it been like actually having a physical shop for Natural Supply Co? It's been great actually because, you know, for online shopping, there's some things that it's really easy to shop online for, but for things like makeup, some people are really tactile. They want to come in and, and see and smell and touch. One of the things that we pride ourselves on is our customer service. And our point of difference is, you know, we have really good customer engagement. We handwrite thank you notes to all our online orders. And that's our point of difference from, you know, the big players. We've had this really good engagement with customers, but now we can engage with them face-to-face too. Does it feel really good to work with products that you get really excited about? And are there any products in particular that make you feel that passion? Yeah, it's really good. And I think I wouldn't say anything specific. What I get really passionate about, it's one of Celeste and our tenants of our business that 
we want to promote all these amazing brands and we do look to support Australian brands, but particularly brands run by women. And Mm. there are so many clever people doing amazing things out there that, you know, have these great ideas. So I think that's probably the big thing for me is, you know, it's women supporting women. You have had quite a few different careers. Do you feel like having moved cities and some of that is because of Chris's job that you've had to be adaptable in that respect? Yes, definitely. It's a good kind of chicken or the egg question, whether I've become adaptable because of my childhood and the function of moving to a lot of different places because of Chris's work or whether I was already that way and then it just suits me. I'm not sure, but I do enjoy it. It doesn't mean that it's always easy. It is hard to, you know, pick up your life and look for a new job and try to make new friends and find a good hairdresser, all those sorts of things. (laughs) But I have worked out that moving to a new city and starting a new job, I reckon I take about six months to kind of find my feet and get in my groove. And then, you know, you're on your way. So, it's sort of what I've, I've said to a few people who are starting new jobs. It's like, just give yourself six months to kind of, you know, feel like you you know what you're doing. You are listening to the Significant Others podcast. Once you moved from the hub, Sarah, because I feel like I got to know you a lot. Once you went back to Geelong, I feel like we really lost a bit of a leader. And I wondered whether that was something that you developed into being a leader as Chris is the leader of the football club. Is that something that you think you've developed or is just who you are? You know, looking back on school days, I was probably quite shy, you know, studious. I wouldn't have said that I had particular leadership qualities, but you know what school's like? It is a bit of a popularity contest. So, you know, I was a house captain at school, but it was probably just because I was friendly to everyone. But I think Mm. maybe that's a bit of a leadership quality that gets forgotten about. So I I wouldn't call myself a leader now. I love to bring people together and I think of myself more as a connector. So I love, you know, bringing groups together. And that's, that's sort of what we did at the Hub, Marty, isn't it? That it's just about giving people the support that they need. You know, if you look at someone like Chris, for him, it's probably being a leader is a lonely position. I like people too much to, um, you know, put myself out in front. I like having people around me. But then, you know, you have in, in say, in Chris's role, it's really important that he's comfortable being alone um, because he often has to make some really tough decisions and has to be the only one to be the public face of that decision. So, you know, in that sense, I we're very different people and I do think that we are kind of yin-yang. We complement each other. So I wouldn't call myself a leader in that traditional sense. I do feel like, say, in a situation like the hub, it was really important for me that everyone felt supported and included. And I think that's probably my thing is is just about inclusion and making sure that, yeah, everyone feels part of the group. In somewhere like the hub, we have a range of people of backgrounds, ages, you know, life situation, family situation. So that's probably one thing is 
just being able to find that common ground, yeah, is really important. And I think just acknowledging that, you know, we are there for football and we are there to support our husbands, but no one really understands what it's like to be in footy except the people in footy. So I think developing those relationships with within the football club for women is really important because you know, your family support you in a different way. But, you know, I know with the other coaches, partners that, you know, they just get it and you don't have to explain anything. And that's really valuable for me. I've found that really useful. It's one of the things that AFL have done yearly is get all the senior coaches, partners together. And we have a lunch once a year and it's really empowering talking to those other women about what it's like. And the same for, you know, it's why players are in a really interesting situation, particularly at the moment, having your family around and then other families to support them has been been really good. And I, you know, I loved having that opportunity to get to know people a lot better, including you, Marty, because you know what it's like. You see people at the footy and you, you can't sort of sit there and actually talk to someone Um, but even getting to know everyone's kids a bit better was really nice too yeah absolutely and you don't even like football (laughs) (laughs) that's right I wouldn't say that I don't I've probably come to appreciate it you know it's essentially it's my husband's job so it's not my passion Um, But I think that's been sort of what works for us because we don't talk footy at home and, you know, he knows that I have my own world and I've worked really hard to create that, that I don't need football to provide me with my interest and me with my circle of friends. And I'm so lucky that, you know, we have such a good group at Geelong that there are people there that you would call your friends out of football anyway. I am really interested in what you said about a very small number of people who understand your specific situation. But in your situation, Sarah, you actually have had a sister-in-law who does. Can you tell us what that's like? Is that an advantage? Absolutely. Penny and I have had many wines together discussing this and she was and always will be because, you know, now that she's she's lived it and even though Brad's not coaching anymore, she's been a huge support to me and, you know, and vice versa that when Brad's had a down week, then I've been there for her and that has made a huge difference. Like I felt when Brad finished coaching that I'd lost my, you know, my, my wing person, my buddy in the footy world and I'm so glad for her that she's, you know, not in that very pressurized environment anymore but yeah it you do you need those people around you to get you through because there's a lot of public scrutiny there's if your child's at school there's that side of things to have to deal with to make sure that you know I've had to talk to Layla about you know how people are to her because of her dad's job so Penny's been great for that too of just I think it's someone to keep you grounded and just make you remember that this is your husband's job and it's not the real world and it's not the whole world like it is a footy bubble and I think in some ways it's a bit of a defense mechanism for me is not going to the footy and not reading any footy media and you know not really 
engaging in footy conversations with people. That's the way that I cope with it. You know, I don't really want to hear too much about it and what people think of certain decisions or games. It might come across that I'm apathetic, but it's not that at all. It's just that's how I need to be. I remember the first year that I went to the Brownlow. So this is Chris's first year coaching. They're in the grand final and I remember just thinking, oh my God, I can't believe that like I've got to do this and get dressed up. And I was so worried about, you know, having my photo taken and being like taken down by all the trolls because, you know, I didn't feel like I sort of fit that mould of, you know, what a football girlfriend looks like. And, you know, we all have that sort of pressure on us, I suppose, that we feel ourselves. And the best thing was that because Chris and Brad were coaching at the time, the media, Chris walked in and they didn't know if it was Chris or Brad. So they sort of, (laughs) we just kind of like snuck by and went through behind a little potted palm and missed all the red carpet. That's the best. Yeah. Amazing. The annoying thing is now I think the AFL are onto it because last time we tried to do that, they've moved the palm tree and now (laughs) like you have to go through the red carpet. I've probably tried to, yeah, insulate myself against it. I think the thing I'm most worried about is Layla's old enough now to sort of understand what her dad's job is. And I do worry about kids saying things at school, like if, you know, if they've lost a game or because I I do remember talking to some other coaches' wives from different clubs and they said that has been the hardest thing is when kids say things that they've obviously heard their parents say, like, oh, Mm. you know, your dad should get sacked. And then the kid parrots it to the child of the coach. So that's probably what I'm most worried about. Yeah, for the most part, I've always been able to just kind of close a door in my mind and not think about it too much. And also it helps that Chris is very much that way. He has no social media presence. You know, he would die at all the commentary about his hair and beard at the moment. (laughs) He's always been really strong and saying, you know, don't take anything personally. It's the job. It's not the person. So I've always kind of just been able to take that on board that we leave things at the door at our house. You wrote in your email around seeing yourself as Sarah first and foremost, being proud of your independence and having your own life, that you are Chris's wife and Layla's mum, but always Sarah first. And I was reading that and I was like, oh my goodness. Often what I'm like trying to find is maintaining or balancing, trying to be the right fit for Patrick's wife publicly or especially since having kids like finding my identity again and being Marty first just reading that I was like how did you how do I do it like I think about it but how do I do it it's hard isn't it it's really it's really tough to have that because I think as a mother you're always giving of yourself and it's really tough like you're in the trenches at the moment Marty with little ones because they need you so much. When do you ever have a moment to yourself? You, you just, you don't unless it's when they're asleep and then you're exhausted. It's something I've always tried to remember. And even when Layla was maybe two years old and I just had had enough. And so I said to Chris, I need you to come home and I need you to take Layla. And lucky he was able to do that. And I just went and took myself off to a little wine bar and had a glass of wine and just sat there, didn't talk to anyone, just sat there for an hour. And that was kind of what I needed to recharge. And I think that's probably one of the things that you've got to work out 
what recharges you because that's how you will put yourself first and finding even if it's you know 20 minutes or an hour or whatever those things and you know I think Chris has always been really supportive of whatever I've wanted to do career-wise so that helps but I know what you're saying you feel like you're expected to be a certain way as you know the wife of someone a partner of someone in footy but maybe that's why I probably um, I'm not active on social media for one of those reasons but that's easier than the done isn't it like we all we're humans we're social creatures we we look to others for inspiration and maybe that's the difference is inspiration not comparison I kind of want Layla to see that you know because I've, I've got a daughter I want her to be a woman who is independent and you know, can do her own thing and doesn't just feel like, oh, like I'm the, you know, I'm the partner of so-and-so or I'm just a mother or, you know, those sorts of things. So, mm. yeah, it it takes time and just working on it daily and also not being worried about people thinking you're selfish for doing that because that's probably one of the biggest things and Celeste and I talk about this a lot that often as women I think we're seen as selfish if we're not putting our partner forward or our child first but the way I look at it is that I'm a better mother and a better wife if I'm happy in myself yeah I think that's probably my philosophy. Completely agree with that Sarah I think I definitely feel that way about my business too that it actually makes me a better mum. And speaking of your business, can you tell us what's coming up next for you and for the business? We're really looking forward to engaging with our community. We've got a beautiful, loyal customer base in Geelong. And one of the things that with COVID, we haven't been able to have events and workshops like we were intending to, because we've got this beautiful space. For us, it's, you know, successful means that we enjoy it. So it's not about making lots of money or you know being super busy we're sort of we're doing it because we love it and we love spending time with our customers and being able to chat so I think that's probably the thing is just making sure that we're successful enough to continue but that we don't let that overshadow what our core values are which is connecting with the customer and providing really good service. And personally what is the next language that you're going to learn (laughs) and... (laughs) I'm trying to um, learn French. Layla's learning French. They had a really good little French kinder in Geelong that unfortunately closed down and that was like French immersion. So her French is really good and my dream is that, you know, we all go and live in France as a family. Yeah, that's my like dream sort of whenever footy finishes that we'll be able to go and do that. So, yeah, we'll, I'll concentrate on that and then um, then maybe Spanish. <laughs> yeah, just lastly, could you tell us your connection with the Geelong Art Gallery? That started when we just moved to Geelong and I went into the Art Gallery because I, I do think that an art gallery in each city, it's, you know, it's a reflection of that city and the people and the culture. So I thought, all right, I'll go and see what this is all about. And I was really interested in you know, just being becoming part of the Geelong community. And I was lucky to um, meet a few people who were already involved. And they said that one of the things that the art gallery was looking to do was engage with a younger demographic. And 
currently they don't have a dedicated contemporary art fund, so they were looking for a volunteer group to fundraise. We now have Geelong Contemporary, which is we're all volunteers and we meet every so often via Zoom at the moment. And it's just looking at, you know, how does the gallery interact with different people? Because traditionally, you know, you sort of think of art galleries and you think of old white men in both mm-hmm. eyes. What I was really keen on was opening it up to, you know, like so many of my friends love design and fashion and it's all related to art. So like the people who've grown up in Geelong and hadn't actually even stepped foot through the door of the gallery and it's a beautiful old building. It's one of the oldest art galleries in Australia. So yeah, I'm just really passionate about kind of, you know, opening that up to a different audience and helping them grow their their contemporary art collection. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much uh, for your time this afternoon for joining us and for telling us your story. I think you're really brave and really honest and I think you have a lot to share with us and it's lovely to get an insight into someone who, you know, isn't on social media and still has lots to share. Thank you, um, Hester and Marty. I've um, really enjoyed our conversation. I think you, what you're doing with the podcast, it's so important to sort of shine a light on these things and just to bring up topics that, yeah, don't always get talked about. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Significant Others podcast. If you have any suggestions of guests you'd like us to interview, please let us know and come follow us on Instagram at the Significant Others podcast. 